a question a little while ago, any commonality among friends and things like that. Yes, I would say there's one phrase that is uttered all the time, and it is, I would do it again in a New York minute, no matter what sufferings, no matter what experiences, at least events I've, events I've come into contact with, they, they say that as universal comment. I would do it again in a New York minute. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org, and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Hello, this is Bob Bach. Welcome to another conversation in the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our guest today is Larry Source. Larry lives in Nashville after, uh, well, a working career in Milwaukee. He is joining us via his home today uh, and hooking up with us in our studio here in West Bend, Wisconsin. Hi, Larry. Good afternoon, Bob. Good to hear from you. Larry is a former soldier with uh, the Army and uh, served with something called the Traffic Management Agency in Vietnam from July of 1970 to uh, July of 1971. This was part of... uh, well, an acronym that uh, many Vietnam veterans will remember, which is MACV, standing for Military Assistance Command Vietnam. But the uh, Traffic Management Agency, Larry, what was that? Well, I was a Transportation Corps officer, Bob, and we were dispatched all over the country at different outposts. I was in July, and I had responsibility, which was uh, fairly heavy duty for me, uh, as a first lieutenant, but I had the seaport, so the movement of all the cargo out of the port, usually on barges up to Da Nang, which was about 60 clicks north, uh, and the airport, which was in the other direction, I had control over and responsibility over all the seats on the aircraft coming in and going out. So uh, it was a real interesting experience. So you were, in effect, you were at the head of a colossal supply line. Absolutely. Uh, I was uh, not even attached to the Americal, the infamous Americal division, but that was their home base and uh, had a real interesting experience when the whole Agent Orange thing was uh, happening with the major who was the division transportation officer. And he called me one day and started throwing his uh, rank around, telling me there's going to be all these 55-gallon drums coming to the port. Get it out of here immediately. Hmm. Yes, sir. As you know, though, I have to know what the commodity is, sir. I probably used the word sir about 15 times in our conversation. I could almost see the pulsating 
carotid on his neck because he wanted to use his weight, but he had no control over me. My bosses were in Da Nang, Lieutenant Colonel and a full bird. So we finished the conversation. I drove the Jeep over to the seaport, which was not too far down the road. Saw all these stevedores, these Vietnam, uh, Vietnamese stevedores coming in with these leaky, dented truckload after truckload after truckload of Agent Orange, I found out later. So they wanted to get rid of the hot potato, obviously, and get it out of their area because it had been outlawed by Congress. And I mean, we don't know that. We're reading the Army Times once in a while if we're lucky, but this was happening stateside. So it was a testy moment. The next thing I know, I'm back at my office calling my colonel, lieutenant colonel. He said, we'll be right there. The two colonels jump in a helicopter, come down, and the next step is we're in the two stars office, head of the AmeriCal Division. Yeah. I had never seen two stars in my life. And I thought, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to be thrown out, quarantined, put in jail, whatever. Worst fears. They weren't even remotely close to being uh, the experience we had. So the two colonels went in, talked to the general. I don't know what they talked about. We leave. I'm, uh, of course, uh, very concerned. And they said, don't worry. You did exactly what you should have done. And I ended up getting out of there. I'm not bragging. I don't mean it that way. And we know the officer efficiency report was inflated. But I left country with a 100 on my officer efficiency report. Wow. So that was uh, that was about the most tenuous experience I had in Vietnam. Otherwise, it was glorious duty for me. Whatever happened to that Agent Orange? I have no idea. Hmm. I have no idea. I have no idea what the discussion was. All I know uh, was the two colonels came out. We got in the Jeep. They got back in their helicopter and took off back to Da Nang. <laughs> and uh, they praised me for doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing. He had to tell me the commodity. And he was adamant he was not going to tell me anything about it. Wow. So after that, I have no idea what happened, but uh, it never came up again as a topic other than in folklore kinds of stories, mm-hmm. like I'm telling you now. So July of 1970, more than 50 years ago, which uh, <laughs> do you find that hard to believe? I'm constantly amazed how old <laughs> I am. I go, by, I go by store windows and I look and it's who is that person? My dad's been gone for years because we look very much alike. Mm-hmm. Who is that person? I can't believe it, Bob. What were your expectations, if you recall, about Vietnam before you got there? And then upon arriving, how, how did that line up or, or I guess not line up? Well, here, here's the way I thought of it because I, I thought of this the other day after our discussion. Um, I followed a normal course of what my dad, my dad was a huge guider in my life. And I went to Marquette University in Milwaukee. He said, you've got to look into ROTC. I had no idea what ROTC was. He had been an enlisted man and then enlisted man in uh, World War II. He was actually a horseman and became an expert rider. So I learned how to horseback ride through my dad. I never horses in the army, but that's what he did. <laughs> got to get into ROTC. If you're going in and there's a Vietnam War, you've got to get an ROTC. So I looked into it, signed up for it at Marquette, uh, did that at a time that was a little tenuous on the college campuses, if you could remember, 66, 67, 68 in that time frame. I do. So my expectation was nothing other than following my dad's guidance. I won't say orders, following my dad's guidance. Plus I got, I think, about 40 or 50 bucks a month, which I know has gone way up since. Uh, so my expectation was simply, I'm following my world order, 
doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So I didn't go over with any trepidation. Uh, I didn't go over with fear and loathing of what was going to happen. I just followed the normal course of what was supposed to be happening in my life. So that's my recollection of it. Mm-hmm. it you once used a, a phrase with me in a conversation when you said, I was in Vietnam, but I was passing through. Right. I look at it, Bob, in contrast to what uh so many of my friends experienced there, which was the more typical experience that you might get from, you know, an infantryman's perspective. And I mean, I wore starched fatigues. I had spit shine boots. I would get my hair trimmed at the uh, officer's area up at the AmeriCal division. It was just a, uh, a different experience I know than most Vietnam uh, vets had. I never carried a weapon. Uh, I had a brand new Jeep. And we know this, that we're in the military, right? The military is run by the uh, NCOs. Mm-hmm. And I had a seasoned NCO E7. And all of a sudden, a brand new Jeep appeared one day. Don't <laughs> question it, sir. It's yours. Brand new Jeep. Wow. So uh, it was just a phenomenal experience. I made the mistake of sending my mother, who was worried sick about her son, you know, She's hearing the stories and watching the movies, you know? Right. So I sent her a picture of myself, uh, uh, you know, with the dog tags around my neck and my hands and my waist like I'm a big hero. And I had injured and had a little, not even, I had a wrap on my ankle from a volleyball court injury, (laughs) which we played invariably on Sundays right outside of my office, Mm -hmm. right a couple of clicks away from the. From the seat so uh she's thinking the worst i got shot at i got wounded no nothing at all uh like that so what really set it home was when i went to the infirmary to have it wrapped and a body bag came in uh, um had never seen a body bag before that must have been stunning and they said well that was uh that was uh i think they said lieutenant colonel got out of a chopper the plane of the uh, of the aircraft of the chopper was not right, and uh, he was uh, beheaded. So you talk about a contrast. Here I am with my volleyball injury, and here comes the body bag with uh, a deceased officer in the army. You know, I've heard that before, and and actually must admit, I experienced myself that Vietnam was in so many ways a a land of opposites, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. We all, the commonality, we all dealt with the monsoons because that was Vietnam. So you had a lot of months, a lot of weeks, days of wet, wet, wet. Other than that, I can't think of much that I had in common with so many. Another blessing from from God, blessing Mm -hmm. from God. How could I come to this country? I have no predisposition towards what the experience is going to be. And this is what I end up with in an air conditioned office with beautiful clothes on. It was, it was unbelievable. When I look back and think about it, it's still unbelievable, uh, unbelievable to me today, many, many years later. Mm -hmm. You know, some veterans I've I've heard who may not have had the exact job or, or role you did, but something similar in that they were relatively protected, actually felt some guilt over the fact that they had such good fortune. Did that ever affect you it did bob but not in a way of anything other than 
thankfulness. I'm a very spiritual person. Thankfulness that this was my experience. It didn't, I didn't obsess about it. Again, it was just another, this was the course of my life, the way it was going to be. Speaking of um, thankfulness, there is uh, an almost indescribable experience that you had as a young child. And uh, now we're, we're turning the clock way back to uh, December 1st of 1958. Not everyone knows of the, the enormous tragedy of the fire at uh, Our Lady of the Angels School in Chicago. But just to recap briefly, a, a fire that had been smoldering for a bit of time started, literally exploded or ignited shortly before dismissal on that day, which was, according to uh, press reports, unusually cold and uh, raw in Chicago. And within minutes, the, um, the fire raced through the old school structure that was made of wood and had been coated as many schools had with many layers of lacquer and varnish over the years. And within uh, a very short period of time, there were multiple casualties. In fact, uh, 93, I believe, to be precise. Uh, yeah, 90, 92, Bob. 92? Three, three Catholic nuns. Three nuns 90. and the rest were children, correct? 95 total, yes. My, oh, my. 24 of the deceased were in my classroom. Well, and that takes me to the next part of the story. You were there that day. Is that a day that you've thought of your entire life, literally? Literally, yes, Bob, every day. Every day. There's no doubt in my mind, uh, self-diagnosis, which is a dangerous thing, but I've thought of this in more recent years. I had to have seen lots of uh, bad things because I went home, which was a couple doors down from the church and school, got a coat, came back out on the corner. I was, I was standing there and, uh, for hours and I don't have any recollection. Another one of, uh, my feelings that it was God's gift. Uh, I had to be in shock, uh, because I had to have seen a lot of violence, but I have no recollection of it whatsoever. I had, I just have the recollection of standing on that corner. In fact, the Chicago historical society put out a magazine a number of years ago that somebody sent me and it was like finding Waldo. I looked at the picture that was part of the story, and there I am standing on the corner. Oh, my. Looking up at the window that I had escaped from that had no flame in the room when I was up there that I was aware of. Heavy, 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 blackest smoke I've ever experienced, but uh, no fire. I got down the ladder, second story, looked back up to the window, and a huge flame, I believe they call it backdraft, shot right out of the window where I had been standing. And wow. sucked right back into the room. So you talk about being seconds away from being a casualty myself. I would have been number 25, no doubt in my mind. One of the things I believe you've done, uh, certainly in more recent years, is commemorate that um, tragic event. Uh, for instance, uh, church services and, and other events that have brought together some survivors and their families. Has that been comforting in any way? Uh, bittersweet, Bob. I, uh, when I was living in Milwaukee in Chicago, it was usually held on the Sunday at Holy Family Catholic Church, ironically, the church that survived the great Chicago fire. You know, the anecdotal um, 
This is O'Leary's cow kicking over the lantern. That right. The whole city ablaze. Holy family was not uh, injured at all. So uh, it was held uh, and continues to be held the closest Sunday on Sunday night. And I would go back for that every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the names would be read of the 95 who passed. Many of my classmates would be there who we have, you know, tremendous bonding with, as you could imagine. And they would light uh, candles as part of the uh, the mass. And uh, in fact, Jonathan Kane, this is just an interesting sidelight. I don't know that we've ever talked about this, but Jonathan Kane, who played with the group, and I believe still does, Journey, yes, was in the fire. Oh, I didn't know that. He was in the fire. Uh, his name was Jonathan Friga, F-R-I-G-A. And he came back. Uh, what a nice, nice fellow. I had never met him before. He came back with his keyboard, had the approval of the pastor at Holy Family to set up his keyboard right beyond where the communion rail would be. And after Mass, he composed a song specifically for the event of the 50th called The Day They Became Angels. My. And he played it after the Mass, and it was very, very moving. And he gave copies. He made multiple copies and handed them out to everybody that were there. So I got a few of the copies. And uh, so that's a little known. And he talks about it very openly. Mm-hmm. If you go to Google his name and see his name, you'll see Jonathan Kane talking about it. So it was a momentous event for him right. in his life. And he was a few grades behind me. So as you could probably know, eighth graders didn't know fourth, fifth, sixth graders. We didn't. We were eighth graders, right? Right. right. <laughs> so uh, I met him. I went up and introduced myself to him and thanked him for the uh, for making the song. I have a copy of it. I played in my car periodically, uh, just to, to to bring me back there again. I don't think I'm obsessive about it, but it it shaped me tremendously in my life and mm-hmm. uh, remains a big, uh, uh, well, more than a big event in my life. The school was uh, eventually torn down. A, a new school was built and uh, stayed in operation for some period of time afterward. I, I guess the thing that may have made that fire so well known is that it became the subject of a, uh, a fire prevention and fire safety movie that uh, I remember seeing as a, as a young child in grade school in the the, uh, there was some irony because the Our Lady of the Angels uh, strongly resembled the school that I attended, and it was just uh, extremely scary to see that as a youngster, and it certainly brought home the point about being fire conscious and what to do if such a tragedy was ever to, to uh, start. But I think that's perhaps one of the greatest ways that people became aware of, of the fire and, and its uh, enormous uh, tragic consequences. Well, it was truly uh, an international event. You know, mm-hmm. we think about 95 people in today's prism. Big deal. You know, it's five minutes on a Twitter account or whatever, and that's the end of it. But 95 people dying in a fire and 92 of them being children. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was huge all over the world. I mean, they were there were fire chief chiefs that came in from all over the world, I'm told, to talk to the authorities here so they could. Uh, learn rules of good conduct so it wouldn't happen in their school systems all over the world. But in the Catholic school system, particularly all over the United States, I've encountered a number of people around the country that said, we we prayed for the kids after that because the nuns, the teachers, whatever, the priests, 
were on the speakers and everything talking about the terrible tragedy in Chicago. So it was truly a very big event. Mm-hmm. The uh, experience of the fire and then uh, years later, the experience of what turned out to be um, actually very good fortune in, in Vietnam, has that left you with uh, an ongoing sense of gratitude? Oh, oh, oh boy. Gratitude. Uh, I mean, I can't even say what an understatement it is. I have been so blessed in my life. I have three wonderful granddaughters. That's why I came to Nashville to follow my grandchildren. And we came here via Southern California where my son-in-law, who's a Marine, uh, was in a big, big job with an aerospace, multi-billion dollar aerospace company. And he got uh, the bug immediately. He got his MBA at Kellogg Northwestern. And he's a real entrepreneurial talent and a great man. And he was determined he was going to be buying a company. So he started looking around the country and the opportunity came to buy this uh, truck body manufacturer in four short years that he's owned it. It was just written up in the Tennessean, which is our big Nashville newspaper, a few weeks ago as one of the best companies to work for in middle Tennessee. So he took a good company with a good product, 43 years old, and he's turned it into this phenomenal company. And his truck bodies are considered the best truck bodies on the road. So uh, blessed, back to your original question, I veered off the path there, I'm sorry, but uh, blessed beyond comparison. Uh, In fact, it came time for me to retire about 11 years ago now, and uh, I thought, what am I going to do? I I don't have any real interest in sports, I don't fish, I don't hunt, I could care less about professional sports, I just don't have any interest. I even teased my sister a while ago saying, you know, mom's legacy and dad's legacy are now protected. Could you tell me, was I born a girl? And they just couldn't <laughs> tell me. So, uh, blessed as, uh, you know, I've been a hospice uh, volunteer for 13 years when I was in Milwaukee. And they would typically assign me when they knew of a veteran who was on the service. So I would go in, I'd put my Army baseball hat with Chulai on the top of it, where I was stationed. And I would go in and salute usually a gentleman, some women though, but not veterans that I uh, oversaw as a volunteer for many years. And I covered the wide swath of uh, the Milwaukee area as a volunteer. And I have to say, the reason I did that, my mom passed away in my home in Elm Grove at the time in hospice. I didn't know how to spell hospice before that, but I became very knowledgeable about hospice care. And and for a number of years, I would coach people, even in my practice of being a financial advisor, I would work it into my part of a service that I offered to educate families, couples, whatever, if they had a situation, I I would say not in a braggadocious kind of a way, but I said, I have a PhD in hospice care. (laughs) So if you ever have any questions, so I was uh, fortunately be able, I was able to influence a number of families on that journey for their loved ones. So, so that was something I did as a absolute need, need to, to, to pay back. And a large part of that comes back from having gone through the fire and being spared by our Lord. The um, interactions that you had with uh, veterans in that uh, unforgettable point in their life, uh, do you recall conversations or themes or were there certain things that uh, veterans – 
would want to touch on. What were you, what were your experiences? My experiences were really highlighted with a relationship I had with somebody uh, who I met at the 84th division on Silver Spring in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Right, we met there. He was an enlisted man, and he actually ended up becoming a client of mine, good friend of mine. Uh, had uh, has significant PTSD. And I would meet with him periodically when I was in Milwaukee. We'd go to breakfast and I would simply listen and not say much at all. I would just listen and have him get this pain out, at least partly. And uh, so I I feel that I've, I've uh, rendered a good service. Again, not to be pointing the finger at me. I'm just, a, just an agent, you know, just as Mother Teresa says, and I have it on the back of my calling card. I'm just a pencil in the hand of God. He does the writing. He does this. I'm paraphrasing. He does the writing. He does the scripting. I'm just the agent. Well, uh, it's clear that you hold a great reverence for veterans. Is that a good word? Oh, oh man. <laughs> that's why. That's another added reason why I could care less about pro sports, what so many of the teams have done with the disrespecting of the flag. I'm a a member of a veteran support group here that meets at Costco every Friday with no agenda other than to be friends. And we have anywhere from two-star generals to private nothings in this group. And on any given Friday, you'll see 35, 40, 50 of us enjoying each other's company. So, yes, I totally am. Uh, and we have a flag on our sleeve. We have a three-button little polo shirt with Middle Tennessee Veteran Support Group has a logo on it and uh, a flag on our right sleeve. And as I told somebody a couple of weeks ago, I pointed to the flag. I said, you disrespect that in front of me. I'm a little guy, but there's going to be a problem in our relationship. What is that uh, group like? Are you surprised? Uh, well, first, let me ask you, uh, is there an openness and a, and a willingness to share? I would assume there certainly oh, is. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We we get there. We start arriving about ten forty, ten forty five. The start time, although I put start in quotes, there's no real start time. It starts when we get there, and then we we're in the food court area. And the manager of the store is tremendously respectful of veterans. In fact, his father's a Navy man, lives in Florida. Otherwise, he would be sitting there with us. So they bring out Costco cakes for us on a regular basis. <laughs> furnished by the management they did when we came back after COVID about four or five Fridays ago after 15 months of not having meetings and uh, they put the tables back in the food court and we sit there and uh, enjoy each other's company and what's really nice what I really like to see is because we're near one of the you know the overhead garage doors they open up where people have to check out after they've done their buying and to see mothers and fathers coming through with their kids. And we virtually all have our, our war hat, our baseball hat on, and you could just see them pointing out, you know, go see those heroes over there, <laughs> salute them. And you see the civics lessons that are, and we're not there for that. We're not there for the praise of the people. But to see these people come through young, old, but particularly to see the young people come through, and come over and say hello and acknowledge us. It gives us some hope, gives me some hope. 
and I'm sure it gives our group some hope that there is some patriotism out there. Speaking of that sharing that you and your comrades uh, participate in at, at these uh, sessions that really sound quite compelling, I must say, does it surprise you that there is, uh, after all these years, I mean, we're going back for you, for instance, uh, it's 50, more than 50 years ago. Does it surprise you that there is an openness now in your life for whatever uh, experiences you had in the military and, and to share those with others? I'm totally open to it. I do it comfortably. Uh, to use the term surprise, it doesn't surprise me. Well, maybe it does surprise me, but in a good way. It's, mm-hmm. it's so nice. Of course, we got to put the template over this. Tennessee and a friend of mine told me, about this before I came to Nashville. I didn't know anything about Nashville. Dolly Parton, that's all I knew about Nashville. (laughs) And country music, that's Mm -hmm. it. I've never been here. But he said, you're going into a state that is unbelievably patriotic. He said, you will be traveling down the road, the highways, and about every five, six miles, you'll see another highway with a designation, Private Will Smith. There'll be a swath of the Vietnam Veterans Highway, which I take a lot to go out to my son-in-law's company and uh, plaques honoring veterans all over. It's called the volunteer state. Very, very patriotic state. Mm -hmm. And that's nice to see again, not, not for me. I just, I don't like the hero worship and all of that. I was no hero, especially me. I was no hero over there. I sat in an air conditioned office. My highest priority of the day when I got in was to have my Julian date calendar with a red pen to mark off another day. <laughs> I say that facetiously, but mm-hmm. that was the first order of business when I walked into the office. So uh, I'm extremely patriotic, as are all the members of this group. We even have a few women uh, who are members, and it's just uh, it's just joyful. I'm so fortunate. Yet again, here's Larry mm-hmm. being blessed with another opportunity finding out about this group almost by accident. <laughs> uh, and we have another group that meets, will be reconvening at the cathedral of the incarnation, which is my parish, uh, two miles from where I'm sitting right now in my apartment. And, uh, it, we reconvene next Tuesday, the third Tuesday of every month at 7am in the morning for a prayer meeting. And it's not just a Catholic thing. It's open to any veterans. So, this coming Tuesday will be a reconvening of that. It's amazing, isn't it, how the years uh, or whatever amount of time it might have been that uh, an individual spent in military service uh, is the backbone of uh, an unforgettable life experience. Does that surprise you a little bit? Oh, absolutely. No, it. Uh, I guess the twists and turns of my life, it does surprise me, but it, it really doesn't surprise me because it's a logical outgrowth of all these steps that were laid out there with the initial commentary of my dad. You got to look into ROTC <laughs> and I see all the things that have unfolded since then as a result of that. It's un, it's unbelievable. So I guess I, yeah, I could call that surprise, but mm-hmm. it's such a ple- pleasant surprise. And Bob, if I could just back up one second, sure. you asked me a question a little while ago, any commonality among friends and things like that. Yes, I would say there's one phrase that is uttered all the time, and it is, I would do it again in a New York minute, no matter what sufferings, no matter what experiences, at least events I've, events I've come into contact with, they, they say that as universal 
comment. I would do it again in the New York minute. That's remarkable, isn't it? It really is. It really is. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's an inspiration to listen to you, Larry. I've always enjoyed mentoring, Bob. I did a lot of that when we owned a brokerage firm uh, that we had sold, and then I went to work for Robert W. Baird the last 20 years of my career. But as I tell people, at least once every couple of days, with these young people particularly that I come into contact with, uh, wow. It's all about, if I have one lesson I'd want to impart about life, it's all about relationships. <laughs> the rest of the stuff is transient. It's just, it, it's here and it's gone. It's here and it's gone. I try to impart that message, but I love to mentor uh, young people, particularly about investments, about life issues. I was asked the other day if I would consider joining a board. And I said, no, I had about six requirements when I retired with the conversation I had with somebody I like a lot. That would be myself. <laughs> I'm not joining any boards. I'm not joining any clubs. I'm not going to any meetings. I'm not doing due diligence. I'm not going to go to the top of a mountain for three days to come up with a five or 10 year plan. I'm not going to do that. I did that in the corporate world. I loved it. Served a great purpose, met thousands of people from CEOs down to to janitors so what a blessed life i've had <laughs> what a blessed life we are we're gonna wrap up but i want to give you an opportunity if i have forgotten to touch on something that you wanted to include i really want you to have that opportunity to do that thank you bob i started something february 1st as i tell people i'm a right angle guy i don't do twisting streets very well that's why it was so easy for me to get along in chicago and milwaukee because of the grid you get to nashville everything is curved streets so it's a tough city to navigate but anyway i'm sitting here at my table on february 1st so that's good it's, it's the start of a month and it's monday night and it's five o'clock at night and i thought how do i leverage my experience especially at this time, having gone through a rancorous election, all the animosity and the hate and the movements and the disrespect that are out there, plus throwing a COVID for good measure. What could I do? So I think to myself as I'm sitting here, I'm going to start something called the NICE Patrol. Capital T, NICE, N-I-C-E, all capitalized, Patrol, capital P. A nice patrol. And as I'm talking to people, because I had made a commitment to myself when COVID started, I'm going to reach back through my whole life, do a lot of investigative work, reach back to people that crossed my path at some point and call and just listen to them and ask if I could help with anything. They just want to talk, whatever it is. So I made hundreds and hundreds of calls all over the country. So I added this uh, to my portfolio, I guess I would say, the NICE Patrol, and I would ask people if they want to join a NICE Patrol, but it's got, it's an oxymoron. It's got no organizational <laughs> structure to it. All I do is write your name down with a little tip to myself off to the end as to how I came into contact with you. Mm -hmm. So here we are almost six months later. We have 172 members. Wow. Uh, one at a time. I'm the total marketing department. We even have little children. Parents uh, who live right across the street from me have a little two-year-old girl 
They both signed up, the husband and wife, for the nice patrol. And I tell them at the beginning, you have no requirement to sign up. This is simply my, I wanted to, my goal in setting it up was to maybe cause people to think a little more consciously, you know, about the kind of the pay it forward concept. You're doing nice things already because I only hang around with nice people. So you're doing things, but maybe this gives it a little structure. So you have some sense of trying to consciously do nice things in the course of a day. Because uh, I, I would say as part of this, when my head hits a pillow at night, I do a personal inventory of my day. And I have to know that I did for me, myself and I, nobody else, that I did at least one nice thing for somebody that day. So as I'm telling people about the nice patrol, I tell them, think of it, you're handed a raw piece of clay. You could make it into bookends. You could make it into a doorstop. You could make it into a statue. It doesn't have to be the Larry Source model of what I do. That's not the only way to do it. You fashion it any way you want. And you are not going to get any calls from me. <laughs> Plus, you're not going to get a lapel pin that says the nice patrol, a T-shirt, or a hat. So, again, oxymoron as it relates to an organization without organizational characteristics. <laughs> And I've had, and I've not told people they should be calling me back with their success stories, but I've had a lot of people coming back, including my longest term friend who was in the fire with me, giving me the recounting of something that he did in Florida for an old lady who couldn't find her car when he came out of Wind Dixie. And he found her car for her. She was, he said, You thought I had given her $10 million. She was <laughs> wilting in the heat. Her makeup, I could see it pouring right off of her face. Found her car. He came back with that story uh, of success. I said, see, it's the adage of volunteers. You feel guilty pleasure. I got more than I gave. Mm -hmm. That's the joy of being a volunteer. That's at least what I've discovered over the years in my volunteer work. Great story. So I'm, uh, we're in 11 states right now with members. I'd love to see this go national. When you told me about your podcast program, I thought, Man, that would be a great way, perhaps, to get the word out so we could have a national membership in this group. Well, I'm sure glad you mentioned it, Larry, and I really appreciate your sharing some just um, unbelievable stories. Thank you for being a guest. Well, Bob, thank you very much. I respect all that you do, and, and anybody that's as patriotic as you are has my salute. I'm saluting you right now, right through the phone line. Thank you, Larry. We have been visiting with Larry Soares. Uh, Larry served with the Army in Vietnam from uh, July of 1970 to July of 1971. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today as well, and uh, also Carrie Wheaton. She is our audio editor and producer. The Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast is sponsored by grants from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation and We Energies. Quick reminder that the Veterans Crisis Line is always available at 1-800-273-8255. Press the number 1 or text 838255 to chat. On behalf of hosts Mike Orban and Aaron Schroffnagel, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. 
While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.